www.positivelivingchurch.com. Welcome to Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now, with Positive Living, here's Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. You know, as I always say, it's an honor and pleasure to really be here with you each week and to bring you such amazing guests and inspire and enlighten you and help you turn your obstacles into opportunities and your problems into solutions, and that's what this program is all about. We're in year number six here on VoiceAmerica.com. I was one of the early adopters, that new word, early adopters, in terms of going on the Internet because I had been doing terrestrial radio for so many years and still am in the 11th year of my other program but really believe that the Internet is the future and Voice America is really one of the first and the biggest. And it's very exciting to have this opportunity to really spread the word worldwide. And so that's what, it, what we do here. Uh, again, you can call in if you are listening today, which is November 26th. We are live from 2 to 3 Eastern and from 11 to 12 Pacific. That's noon. And if you're listening, then you can certainly call in. If not, you can catch the show on my archive by going to raskinresources.com or go to voiceamerica.com and look up Positive Living, and you can listen to the archive. Okay. Um, my guest today, and, and if you'd like to call in, you can call in at 866-472-5788. My guest today is Lou Marinoff, who is a professor of philosophy and best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac. We're talking about his new book, The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. And Lumirinov has a very long bio, and I will read you part of it. He earned his doctorate in philosophy of science at University College of London. He's held research fellowships at the University College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he is associate professor of philosophy and former chair of philosophy at the City College of New York. And the New York Times in 2004 called him the world's greatest marketer of philosophical counseling. Welcome, Lumirinov. Thank you very much, Patricia. Glad to be with you. All right. What did the New York Times mean, Lou, the world's greatest marketer of philosophical counseling? What does that mean? What does this mean? I, you should ask the Times. They said a lot of nice things and some <laughs> other things about me. I'm glad you're repeating the nice things today, Patricia. <laughs> but basically, philosophical counseling is, as, as you probably know, many of your listeners may know, a way of approaching our moral dilemmas, our ethical quandaries, our life situations with a philosophical view, a perspective of ideas. Not every problem in life is a mental illness. Uh, this, this may be news to some of your listeners, but mm-hmm. America is a very heavily psychologist and very heavily medicalized culture, and every problem in life tends to be either diagnosed or treated with a drug. So philosophers such as myself and my colleagues have returned to the scene with a host of ideas from the wisdom traditions of the world to help people confront and resolve everyday problems. That, that's philosophical counseling in a nutshell. Well, and that kind of speaks to the title of your best-selling book, the first book, or one of your books, Plato, Not Prozac. Right, and Plato on Prozac, which was published in New York, HarperCollins, 1999, this was a real kind of watershed for the movement. The book has been 
translated, to my astonishment, it's gone now into about 25 languages, mm. and it's become a bestseller, huge bestseller in many countries. It's, it's, it's well known in the USA, too, although it hasn't got me onto Oprah yet. It's got me onto your show, and that's really wonderful. I just want you to understand that Americans are still, I think, too dependent as a culture, as a nation, much too dependent on psychotherapy and medication, and so have lost touch with a lot of inner resources. And there are other cultures in the world that are not as materially affluent as us, mm -hmm. not as dynamic as us, you know, in the sense of globalizers, but are much more in touch with philosophy. And from Spain to Holland to Sweden to Turkey to Brazil, there are, there are just incredible numbers of people who have tuned into Plato, not Prozac, in these different languages. So that's basically taken me around the world. What it's done, Patricia, has taught me a huge amount about other nations and other cultures. It's also shown me that people are pretty much the same universally. We all have, you know, similar issues in life. Right. The other thing that it's done is to uh, create opportunity for philosophers in many other countries to render these kinds of services because there's an enormous public demand for it and, and that's been engendered by the book itself so philosophers can now come out of the woodwork and become more helpful you know to others as well as being teachers and professors so let's speak to that for a minute in in the other cultures would you say that people are doing more inner work, more meditating, are they more religious, are they more spiritual? Is that some of what you're talking about? Partly true. I mean, it's all over the map, and of course, within America, we find deeply religious enclaves. You know, there are, there are all kinds of, of manifestations of culture everywhere. But in general, you could see that some civilizations, for example, Islamic civilization broadly based, is still extremely religious and very fundamentalist, so they get their philosophy as well as their systems of justice and all other things more or less from their scripture. So they're not necessarily studying you know, as much secular philosophy as perhaps they could or should, but they have principles certainly that guide their lives. I think that Europeans in general are less dependent on Prozac uh, and you know external medications. They're a little bit more introspective, and so they're uh, they're more in touch, I think, with their philosophical roots. But what? Americans could be and should be. And okay, and what, in your opinion, should Americans do to be more? In a sense, the middle way to be more Plato-like than Prozac-like. Well, this is a this is a tough question because uh, what I've discovered in you know in my travels, and I also crisscross this country from coast to coast. I think that some of the problems in this country are not being addressed. You know, educational issues and other things that would, at an earlier age, make people more amenable to their own talents and their own philosophical resources. I think that America, unfortunately, is coming to resemble more like the Roman Empire and less like the Hellenic civilization from which Western philosophy springs. You know, in ancient Greece, there were more or less philosophers in every street corner, and they really played a role in public life and in civic life. In Rome, there weren't that many philosophers. It was more a culture of, you know, legions marching down roads to civilize the world, and also a culture of circuses in its more degenerate days. And I'm sorry to say that the U.S. is starting to look, certainly from the outside, to many Europeans and Asians, like a culture of consumers and a culture of circuses, mm -hmm. well, not reflected. Know with the Roman Empire is that it fell. Yes, and that's our problem, too. And we have to be willing to look in the mirror and address our shortcomings in order to survive. All empires wax and wane. This is not news. I mean, the British, if you look at their empire, they ruled about two-thirds of the world up to the end of the Victorian period. Mm -hmm. They lost it all within 50 years. The Romans took longer to fall because the ancient world, you know, had less technology, and, and so there was less acceleration. But we live in a very accelerated times, so we have to be on guard. We can certainly lose it all, too. Now, how would you compare your new book, 
which is the middle way, and finding happiness in a world of extremes. How is that a departure from Plato, not Prozac, or is it just more? Do you look more globally in this book? Yes, I, I am looking more globally, and as we've indicated, it's a result really of Plato, not Prozac, going to so many languages and cultures, taking me there to work with people. And I, I've met with world leaders and with a lot of media people from different countries and with people really in, at the grassroots level in bookstores and at public events. So I've gotten a handle on a lot of issues, and I wanted to reflect some of these back to Americans and other readers. So it's building on Plato, not Prozac, and the sequel, if you like, was is called Therapy for the Sane. That was more uh, similar to Plato, not Prozac, dealing with philosophy in everyday life, mostly for people and, you know, for relationships and so forth. This book, The Middle Way, is more political, it's, it's more cross-cultural, and as you know, it deals with a much broader spectrum. I'm painting with a bigger brush in this book. So it, it relates the problems of the global village to the individual, but it's looking, as I said in the book, from philosophical orbital space. It's giving people a snapshot of the world mm-hmm. as a philosopher would see it from long range. Mm. And if you look into that crystal ball, which is what I would call it, that global crystal ball, Where's the hope? What do you see that's going? We can talk about all the problems, but where's the glimmer of hope that you see, Lou? Oh, I see lots of hope. And one can always, you know the old saying about the cup being half empty or half full, and, you know, the pessimist will say it's it's half empty and the optimist will say it's half full. I think that we can always find good things, almost even in every bad situation, we have to look for the good things. And when situations get dire or desperate or seem to be hopeless, that's where we most urgently need to find that ray of optimism that actually will see us through. So so in general, to answer your question, I'm looking at globalization as a phenomenon that is really, in a way, unprecedented. And one of the things that it's doing is it represents the transcendence of economic forces over political and religious ones. That's partly the the cause of conflict. It's making people commingle. It's bringing together and uniting in so many different matrices, both you know via the internet and cyberspace, and also socially and economically through transactions. It's it's uniting people who were formerly disparate. It's commingling cultures that were formerly you know mutually separate and sometimes mutually hostile. So it's making us all understand that not everybody believes the same things as we do, and we have to find a way to get along. You think the internet has done that really? Well, the internet has contributed enormously. I mean, if you look at email, and you know perfectly well you operate in this medium, yes, so you know that it shrinks space and time. Yes, we can does. communicate instantaneously with anyone on a- anywhere in the world, provided they have access. Mm-hmm. And this, this is this is unprecedented. To think back a couple of hundred years, if you wanted to write a letter, you know, to some friend in London, you would have to send it by ship, and it would take you know a month or two to cross and then come back. And so you got the letter, you got the return letter. It was really a big thing. Now we send email, and if someone doesn't answer your email in a couple of hours, you get impatient, right? We all start wondering, you know, where are they? So our space and time have definitely shrunk. And that can be good, you see, because it gives us the opportunity to connect with people and cultures that otherwise we never would have done. Mm. And, of course, the negative part of that is also that you get the bad news very quickly, too. Well, this is the major issue, that unhappiness unhappiness felt, for example, in some formerly remote part of the world, be it, you know, Afghanistan or be it, you know, some other place, can very rapidly manifest itself in other parts of the world because of this connectivity. So we cannot any longer pretend that we don't know what's going on in different mm-hmm. places. And in fact, everyone is connected now. And so in everyone, in one, in one way or another, is going to become vulnerable and susceptible to feeling what everybody else is feeling. Mm. Oh, excellent information. 
All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, there's so much more to talk about in terms of what's, what's really happening in some of, you know, in the globe. I mean, what's happening in the Middle East? And is there a solution to that? And what about the widening gap between the rich and poor and political polarization in our own country? And what can we do about these things? And Lou Marinoff, who is our philosopher, uh, will give us some answers. My guest is Lou Marinoff, professor of philosophy and best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac. And we're talking about his new book, The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes, which explores our global village from the unique perspective of philosophical orbital space. And if you'd like to call us and you're listening on November 26th on Monday between 2 and 3 p.m. Eastern or 11 and noon Pacific, you can call us at 866-472-5788. You're listening to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy-to-understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Had an accident? The people you may encounter may be attorneys, doctors, and insurance agents. How do you protect yourself and your family? Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff, an experienced trial attorney and former legislator. Attorney Woodruff and his expert guests assist and inform on what to do in a crisis, what steps to take, what to avoid, and most important, what you need to know to get through the process. Meeting by Accident broadcasts every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Because being informed makes all the difference. Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com are back. You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin. And as I said before, if you're listening today on November 26th, between 2 and 3 p.m. Eastern and 11 and noon Pacific, you can give us a call if you have a question or comment at 
5788. Very interesting program for you today about philosophy, about the world, about extremes and non-extremes. My guest is Lou Marinoff, who is a professor of philosophy and best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac. We're discussing his new book, The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. And let me read you about my guest today, who has a very long biography. He earned his doctorate in philosophy of science at the University College London. He has held research fellowships at University College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he is associate professor of philosophy and former chair of philosophy at the City College of New York. And as I said in the first segment, the New York Times called Lou Marinoff the world's greatest marketer of philosophical counseling. His books include the international bestsellers, Plato Not Prozac, and Therapy for the Sane. Welcome back, Lou. Thank you, Patricia. All right, and his, his website is themiddleway.us, themiddleway.us. All right, now I'm going to ask you a very loaded question, and that is if we look at the world of extremes and then we try to look at the middle way, which is the title of your book, is there a solution to the quagmire in the Middle East? Yes, there is. And once again, it's a question of time and patience and dialogue. But if you are asking about the Middle East, it's how much time do we have? You know, there's 1,500-year conflict, more or less, between Islam and the West uh, intermittently, and 9-11 was just another chapter in, in that very long conflict. I think a lot of Americans were probably astonished by 9-11. I was. I, I witnessed it, and it was almost surreal. It changed a lot of people's lives and took a lot of people's lives. It also opened our eyes, however, to the fact that we are party to people's versions of history, whether we want to be or not. And Americans have been, by and large, I think, brokers of peace, you know, worldwide, notwithstanding that we're often the cops of the world. Look, the Middle East is one of the most extreme regions, and of all of the geopolitical areas in the world, it's probably the most volatile and the most in need of a middle way. And it just it just incredibly happens to be the birthplace of not one, not two, but three great world religions. What are the odds, Patricia, mm-hmm. that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam would all have been born in such a relatively small part of the world and yet have exercised such sway over the whole global village? That's true. And, and what I think what's confounding to me, and I've said this to several religious leaders here, is that you know you you take you look at what's happening in Israel and in Palestine, and you look at the the, the needless bloodshed, and not just adults but children, and the people who are fighting these are fight these are the not just extreme but they're the most religious zealots. How can people who believe in God and are so holy be killing each other? And I, I maybe you can shed light on this. And maybe you can shed light on the possibility of peace, because every time we think we're close to peace there, something happens. Yes, and it's easy. I mean, one could talk about the darkness for a long time, and I will try to stay as much as possible in the light. Let me make one quick distinction for you, uh, which I make in the middle way, and that's between fanatics and fundamentalists. Fundamentalists are like orthodox believers in a given faith, and they, and they have a book, and they have a way, and, and they have you know, their communities, and they generally lead their own lives somewhat apart, but they don't normally pose a threat to anyone, and there are communities in the United States and all over the world of fundamentalist Jews, fundamentalist Christians, and fundamentalist Muslims who, who lead a pious life and who do not pose threats to anyone because at least they're tolerant enough 
to leave others in peace. They may not share everyone's views, but they're not trying to kill other people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important. Fundamentalism in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It could be very good for people and give them a a meaningful life, yes? That said, Patricia, all of these communities are generally flourishing under secular governments, and that's because we have, you know, the separation of church and state, which is, I think, a very important development politically. Fanatics, on the other hand, tend to be people who are intolerant of others. In other words, they have a book or a code or a credo, and they say this is the way it has to be for everybody, so they will violently, if need be, impose you know, their ways on people mm-hmm. through bloodshed, through slaughter, which indeed always contradicts the main precepts. Every world religion teaches peace and love at its core, and these fanatics basically have hijacked their own religions you know, for the purpose of furthering their political ends. Mm-hmm. So that's a distinction to ponder. Okay. So when you look at this in terms of the global village, where do you see this for the future? Are you hopeful, Lou? Yes, I am, and I have reason to be. One, As I say, one can always look at the evidence in despair, but if you look at other evidence, you have room for, for a lot of hope. For example, mm-hmm. case in point, two of the five nations that declared war on Israel in, in 1948 have made peace. And that's very important and very significant. Egypt is, you know, one of the largest and most powerful of the of the Arab states in the Middle East. Egyptians have a much older civilization than this, and they're aware of it and proud of it. Anwar Sadat, you know, who was the author of the Yom Kippur War, also then turned around, did a dramatic volt fast, and became a warrior for peace, paid for it with his life. There's a monument to Sadat in Cairo. Egyptians are very proud of him, and they should be. He was a very courageous man. And he made it possible for the other Arab states to actually get on side as well by setting that valuable precedent. Jordan has done the same thing. The younger, the younger Hussein and his very dynamic wife, I believe, are more enlightened monarchs, and they have made peace with Israel too. And they now are cooperating in all kinds of joint economic ventures, which is benefiting everyone in the region. So I think that they too understand that peace is better than war. And it remains for the other key nations to make the peace, and this is now being discussed. So uh, the real struggle, uh, as I'm pointing out and as others have pointed out from a political uh, analytic basis, is not between Western civilization and Islam. The real struggle is going on within Islamic civilization. There are forces that seek to modernize and to become more like us and actually to work with us as willing partners, and then there are the fanatics who, who want to lead everyone backwards in time. And that's the real battle that has to be fought and won. And that's an ideological war. We're well, not going to win I, this but with I don't weapons. Hear you, but it's interesting, though, in that description, is I don't hear you saying that the battle is between Israel and Palestine. No, it's not. And this is, I think, that the Western media, particularly, if I may say so, anti-Semitic media or anti-Israel media for the last 30 years have been, you know, portraying this as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict and have been blaming all of the hostilities in the Middle East on on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And excuse me, that historically is absolutely incorrect. They have reversed cause and effect. In fact, the Palestinian refugee problem was caused by the Arab world's unwillingness to accept Israel and Palestine. And let's go back even further and take a look at the maps. In 1922, you know, when the British took over, Palestine consisted of today's Israel and the West Bank and Gaza and Jordan. Excuse me, Palestine itself was a huge area which the British partitioned into Cisjordan and Transjordan. They created the state of Jordan overnight, removing about 80% of the territory from what was Palestine, and there was no revolt in the Arab world when they did that. So 
So, you know, I think that the Arab world in general is starting to assume or starting to think about assuming historical responsibility for their role in creating the Palestinian refugees and refusing to absorb them. Excuse me, Patricia, how many people has the USA absorbed in its, you know, recent history? A couple of hundred years? Mm-hmm. Tens of millions of immigrants, yes? Yes. From every part of the world, we've welcomed people with open arms. From every possible quarter of the world, people have come here and settled and found liberty, opportunity, hope, and prosperity in the American dream, more or less, more or less. So we're talking about initially a population of about 500 to 700,000 refugees from Palestine who could have been absorbed. The Arab world is just as large as us geographically and more homogeneous culturally, linguistically, and religiously. They didn't absorb them. They kept them in terrible, in a terrible position. I mean, I'm not blaming the Palestinians for this. Their position politically has been almost impossible, and their leadership up until recently has not been a leadership that was based on statecraft. It was a leadership based on terror, and so that couldn't work for them either. But now I see much more hope. With a larger regional peace, there is going to be a solution to the Palestinian problem. When they're ready to exercise sufficient statecraft, they will have a state, and it will be side by side with Israel, and the two could even join forces and become very strong. Do you see that that's, that's in our optimism. lifetime? Do you see that in, in the next 30 to 50 years? It's possible. It's, it's certainly possible. Uh, it could have happened, as I said, it could have happened you know, 50 years ago, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't happen within the next 50 years, that will be because of a lack of political will. Not, not because anything else is missing. The Palestinian people, you know, in their exodus, in their exile, and in their diaspora, have become among the most enlightened of Arab people. They've, they've settled in the West en masse. You know, they have descendants here now. They're very much part of American life, and also, you know, in Europe and other, in other cultures. And they're very astute people. They've learned to survive outside of Arabia, just as the Jews did in our diaspora. So we have a lot in common with them, and I think that we could make common cause with them, and they would be great neighbors and great partners. Mm. It's a question of having the political will and the dialogue to move forward. So that, right. that's my optimism. It can happen. Here's my question. When an individual listens to what you're saying, which is, is very large, I mean, we're talking globally, how can we, you know, our individual people, how can we begin to make this kind of peace happen, not just in the Middle East, but, you know, between disparate cultures, between the rich and the poor? What can we individually do every day? Lots of things. And, you know, you, you may remember Gandhi, who famously said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. So one of the, one of the things that we, we, we shouldn't do probably is point the finger at everybody else and say, well, you have to change, you have to change, you have to change. It is, it is, we all have the capacity to do better and worse as individuals, too. And our own conflicts are eventually going to be mirrored in our larger environments as well. So I think each one of us has a responsibility to identify the extremist who lives within and moderate that one, and then we will do better in our own lives and in our own relationships, and this has a ripple effect without doubt. When you say that, the extremist within, you're talking about our own prejudices? All of it. You know, we're all imperfect. We have an imperfect world, and all of us can use work, myself included. There's no doubt about it. And all of us can do specific practices that will actually help us to achieve more inner peace and therefore to help our environments become more harmonious and our relations with others. And you know that's part of the middle way. I mean, the middle way is focused not just on the world's problems, but on the ABCs, Aristotle, Buddha, Confucius, and their paths to self-improvement. And we're going to talk about that after the break. My guest today is Lou Marinoff, and we are talking about his new book, which is The Middle Way, Finding Happiness 
in a world of extremes. He is the best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac, and he's a professor of philosophy, very well-known, best-selling author, and you can log on to his website, Lou Marinoff, M-A-R-I-N-O-F-F dot com. And you can give us a call if you're listening live on, on November 26, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern, 11 to noon Pacific. The number is 866-472-5788. You're listening to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Wine and Women is not your boring wine geek show. It is rather a fresh, fast-paced approach featuring interesting stories and entertaining segments about wine and wine-related topics through a warm and chatty format that will appeal especially to women, men optional. Hosted by wine connoisseurs and luxury lifestyle experts, Julie Brosterman, Lisa Kring, Sharon Borston, and Jeanette Oku, Wine and Women takes listeners to Napa, Sonoma, and other wine regions worldwide to meet the best as well as the newest winemakers, to restaurants to meet top chefs and sommeliers, to wine-themed spas, wine country getaways, even into supermarket wine aisles where Women and Wine Angels swoops down and helps shoppers to get their wine picks and more. Women in Wine broadcasts each Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Women in Wine, enjoying life one sip at a time. Ever wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood Jet Set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with President of Traveris, David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Travera's Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors, sports celebrities, and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend. On Travera's Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa also offer up feature vacations each week and last-minute deals for your next getaway. Find out what's new and exciting in the travel industry, as well as how to raise money for your nonprofit organizations while enjoying a wonderful vacation. Travera Celebrity Travel Talk with David Manning and Lisa O'Hurley broadcasts each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Travera Celebrity Travel Talk, your inside look into celebrities and travel. VoiceAmerica.com Everyone, we are back. You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin. I have a great guest on today. You know, I usually don't do political programs, and I don't consider this a political program, but we are talking about creating peace globally in the world, cross-culturally and within our own culture. And so we are talking about positive living within the larger context. My guest today is Lou Marinoff, who earned his doctorate in philosophy of science at University College London. He's held research fellowships at University College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and is associate professor of philosophy and former chair of philosophy at the City College of New York. Uh, He's had several books, and several have been bestsellers. He's been the author of Plato, Not Prozac, for which the New York Times said that he is the world's greatest marketer of philosophical counseling. He's also the author of the bestseller, Therapy for the Sane. 
And now his newest book is The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. And you can log on to lumarinoff.com or themiddleway.us, themiddleway.us. Welcome back, Lou. Thank you, Patricia. All right, you talk about the ABCs in your book. You introduce each of the ABCs. What does that stand for? Right. This, the ABCs are Aristotle, Buddha, and Confucius. They are three, probably the three greatest sages in, from the ancient world. And each of them gives us a very important and useful version of a moderate way of living that ultimately brings us a kind of indestructible happiness. Okay. And how do you work with those in your book? Okay, you know that as a philosopher, I, I don't have all, I don't have the solutions to the world's problems. I have a perspective on things, and I think that good ideas always make a difference. And that, you know, great ideas are helpful both to people and to cultures and to our getting along together. So I have spent four and a half years on this book, actually, which is a long time, in order to delve into the ways in which the ABCs can be helpful. And every extremism that I point out in the book, and you know that there are chapters devoted to, for example, political extremes in America, sacred and profane extremes, uh, educational extremes, economic extremes, and not, not only the Middle East, but a lot of, a host of extremisms that afflict the global village. But for each and every one of these, I have tried to apply the useful insights of the ABCs in order to show people that there is a way to moderate and, and also to end up being very happy and very helpful. All right, let's talk about some of those things. We talked about it before the break, that you said each of us can do things every day that lead us toward peace. What are some right. of those things we can do? In a nutshell, we can summarize, if you like, the virtues that each one of these sages espoused and apply them to our own lives, you know, very rapidly. Aristotle, we'll start with A for, you know, Aristotle was, was the, probably the most influential philosopher in Western civilization. He virtually invented the curriculum of the contemporary university. He was Plato's best student and so forth. And one of the main contributions of Aristotle is the idea that each of us has a kind of excellence. You, me, everybody who's listening, each, each person has certain kinds of gifts. And when we develop and refine those gifts, then we find our purpose in life and we achieve fulfillment. And the Greek word is eudaimonia. It doesn't mean happiness as a kind of transient mood or euphoric state. It means a kind of fulfillment which you generate from the inside. Of course, there has to be a supportive milieu. If you have a talented child or a child who's just looking for himself or herself, whatever the case may be, we have to have a supportive milieu in which the individual can find his or her talents and be encouraged, of course, to develop them. But if that happens, that person is on the road to being fulfilled. That, that's the Aristotelian view, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's very individualistic, right? And it gives rise in the West to a tradition that celebrates individual accomplishment. For example, as manifested in whether it's the Olympic Games or the Nobel Prize, the Olympic Games originated in, the, in, in ancient Greece. The Nobel Prize is somewhat more new. But these are examples of how we celebrate the worth and the value of individual accomplishment in, in the West. In. Right. I mean, there are other cultures that don't always celebrate the the accomplishments of the individual. Well, now we look at the extremes. If we push Aristotle too far and we start looking at individualism in disregard of society, then we get egoism and hedonism and, you know, how am I going to satisfy myself today and the heck with everybody else. This is going too far. You see, that's taking the virtues of Aristotle and, and disregarding everybody else. So we can contrast Aristotle with Confucius, which 
which are they're like yin and yang pairs because Confucius is the most influential philosopher in East Asia, generally China, Japan, Korea. Tremendous influence. Neo-Confucianism has reigned there also for centuries in one form or another. And what's Confucius teaching? Also virtues, by the way, but he's teaching us that our fulfillment comes from perfecting and harmonizing our relationships with others. So it's not centered on the self. It's actually centered how well we do in Confucian cultures is a function of how well we are getting along with others and performing our duties toward others. So in Confucian terms, Patricia, each one of us has certain duties to our children, to our parents, to elders, to friends. We're part of the Hmm? whole. We are part of a much bigger whole. Exactly. We're all part of a social matrix. And, you know, the interesting thing is, in China, for example, when Prozac got introduced there, the the Chinese doctors, they they couldn't understand how you could prescribe Prozac to one family member. They said, well, if somebody in the family needs Prozac, then everybody needs Prozac. Oh, interesting. In other words, their view is that if somebody in the family is suffering, then it's the family's problem then there's something that the family is not doing. And you, you wouldn't believe this in Japan. You know what happens when someone jumps in front of the subway? I mean, they get suicide jumpers. You know, we have them here too, New York, London. You, you may, it may happen to you, and I hope it doesn't, that you get stuck on the subway because somebody jumped in front of a car. You know that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And in Japan, when someone does this in Tokyo, they actually make the whole family pay for the lost time of everybody stuck in the cars. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, here in the West, what happened? Somebody jumped, okay, that's their problem, right? And and you hear a lot of people saying, oh, isn't that too bad? Now I'm going to lose time. Again, it's all about me. And in in Asia, you see, if someone commits suicide under those circumstances, then, in fact, the whole family has to assume responsibility for the social losses that those delays, you know, incur. And so, once again, you cannot be dissociated from others. In Asia, you really are part of a team, like it or not, in many dimensions. And this gives them great virtues. All right, and that's interesting because you have Aristotle that really focuses on the individual and Confucius that focuses more on the group and you're part of the whole. What about Buddha in all of that? And Right, exactly. So as you get now, Buddha is like the middle way within the middle way. The term middle way comes from, of course, originally from Buddhism and is really the, the contribution of Nagarjuna more than anyone who reformed Buddhism importantly. But basically, I, I see Buddhism, and I'm not a particularly religious person, okay, uh, in the sense that I'm not devout or observant in a ritual way. So I, I see Buddhism has become a great world religion, but with respect, I'm not sure that that's what Buddha intended. I see Buddhism as a great secular philosophy. The principles of Buddhism, if applied to everyday life, are certainly beneficial. And here's the beautiful part. Which it's beneficial what? for self and other. I think and What that, would you say is the philosophy of the Buddha? The, the philosophy of the Buddha is, in a nutshell, that, that people suffer, but suffering is not necessary. Suffering is optional. That people suffer. We have more power than we think over our suffering. If we understand its true causes, we can definitely alleviate them and then not only cease to suffer ourselves, but more importantly, help other people to alleviate their suffering too. And that's the message. So how do we combine these three, who almost seem juxtaposed in a sense, Aristotle, Confucius, and and Buddha? How do you combine those three for the middle way? They, they really are juxtaposed, and uh, again, I think that what Buddha is doing almost certainly is telling people to develop themselves inside. Everyone is a Buddha. Everyone has this wonderful, magnificent nature, which is resplendent, which is serene, which is helpful, and we all have that within, but we in the West suffer from, you know, once again, Freudian models. Very often people are portrayed as being, you know, dark and being prey to different forces over which they have no control. Buddhism actually teaches people to 
gain control over themselves and to do good with it. So I juxtapose it in, in, in the following way, that each of these three philosophers in a given day could be useful to everybody. You know, we are individuals in one sense, and you are different from other people, and there are certain gifts that you have that make you different. So Aristotle says, polish those gifts. You know, make sure that you are refining your talents on a daily basis. Confucius is saying, make sure at the same time you're not neglecting others. Harmonize your relationships. Think of other people, and you will make yourself happy by serving others. And Buddha is saying both. He's saying not, not either or. Buddhism says, yes, do, do all of those things. But first, calm your own mind and try to unburden yourself of the, from the attachments and prejudices which mm-hmm. cause ill-feeling and which cause anger and poisons like you know greed and envy to arise in the mind. The, these are toxins which we ourselves have to dispel. And if we can do that, then our own greatness, everyone's greatness will emerge. Now, this is an interesting question. I don't know how you're going to answer this, but I just thought of it. If, when you think back on all your years of teaching, what would you say is the most typical problem or issue that a student will come to you with after they've read the text and they've gone through all the material and they come to you and they say, yes, but Professor Marinoff, what about this? What do you hear? What do I hear? This is from several decades of a pretty broad, broad-based curriculum. I think that doing teaching philosophy is a little bit different, perhaps, from, from other subjects. Maybe not, but in philosophy, what I hear a lot is insights which could be useful to their lives. And students come back and say, wait a second, how, how does this apply to me? Or they say, wait a second, this seemed to, you know, to be relevant only to this particular time and place, but actually now I understand that this idea is really speaking to me, and it's about you know, my life or my times or my situation. So it's, to me, it's all about making things relevant. And the, and the most interesting breakthroughs that I've experienced as a teacher are with students who suddenly see the relevance of the curriculum or the relevance of a particular philosophy to their lives. So it, it's what you're saying is all of the centuries of wisdom are very applicable to now, and this is what the students gain. Is how yes, it helps them. That's exactly right. We, we are not just. I mean, books are not dead things. Ideas are not dead things. You know, they, they have as much longevity as genes, and maybe more. If you think about Plato it, the music not, that's where the Plato, not Prozac, comes in. <laughs> right, we're back to that again. Yeah, so ideas, I, I mean, I'm maybe just a philosopher, so you could say, well, because you think for a living, you know, so ideas are important to you. You know, people who trade on Wall Street don't, don't put that much value in ideas, aren't mm-hmm. publicly traded, so they have some other priorities. But I really believe, Patricia, that we are what we think. This is back to Buddha again also, not just Plato. Mm-hmm. Plato, by the way, turns out to be possibly a kind of Buddhist. You could put a spin on him if you want. But seriously, we are what we think, and our ideas are of utmost importance. What we you will know, for ourselves is... There's a new book, and it's actually a whole, it's a movie. It's become, it's swept our country by storm in the last few months, The Secret. Do you know about The Secret? I've heard all about The Secret, yes. It's it's, a secret to me because I haven't read it yet, but I've heard about it. Well, it's very similar to what you're saying. The whole philosophy is that you create your reality. Oh, it's karma. People are saying, yeah, of course. It's, it's, the, it's the Asian philosophy of karma, that, that, there, that life is cause and effect, and it's not just Newtonian physics. It's not just mm-hmm. you throw something up in the air and, you know, gravity makes it fall. Right. Our relationships with others and our moral lives are also subject to causal laws. Mm-hmm. And if you do good, good returns to you, and if you do evil, evil returns to you, this is almost certainly yes. true. Yes. All right, we're going to take a break. My guest today is the philosophy professor and very enlightened person, Lou Marinoff, whose new book is The Middle Way. And this book is is very interesting because it helps you look at the middle way rather than the extremes. 
and the subtitle is Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. He's also the best-selling author of the book, Plato, Not Prozac. And there's still time to call us after the break at 866-472-5788. You can log on to Lou Marinoff's website, themiddleway.us, or Lou Marinoff, M-A-R-I-N-O-F-F dot com. All right, folks, you're listening to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Albert Einstein once said, Nothing happens until something moves. Will your movement towards realizing a dream, making a long-lasting change to your life, or simply putting a daily smile on your face is just a click away. Tune into Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney and free your mind, open your heart, and ignite action in your life. Host and commander in change, empowerment coach, and international speaker, Scott Chesney shares his insights to making the most out of your daily lives. Scott interviews people who are maximizing their lives, the most recognizable transformationalists and leaders around the world, as well as those hometown heroes that move, touch, and inspire the best in all of us. Stay tuned into Maximizing Life for Scott's one-on-one coaching with callers. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney broadcasts each Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney, inspiring you to live life with passion, purpose, and limitless potential. Young people, do you want a forum to discuss your ideas and thoughts about what matters most to you? Speak Up brings together diverse voices, cultures, and ideologies from college-age adults across the country. Host Gina Holland provides a different perspective on how current affairs impact future generations. Broadcasting live every Thursday, Speak Up with Gina urges young Americans to think, ask pertinent questions, and affect change. That's Speak Up with Gina, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Hi, everyone. We are back. You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin. And there's still time to call in if you're listening on Monday, November 26th. And if you're listening today, uh, between 11 and noon and between 2 and 3 on Positive Living, give us a call at 866-472-5788. My guest today is Lou Marinoff, professor professor of philosophy and best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac. We're talking about his new book, The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. And just to tell you a little bit more again about Lou Marinoff, he earned his doctorate in philosophy of science at University College London. He has held research fellowships at University College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's associate professor of philosophy and former chair of philosophy at the City College of New York. And as I said, uh, on his on his book, Plato Not Prozac, the New York Times deemed him the world's greatest mar- marketer of philosophical, philosophical counseling. Welcome back, Lou. Thank you very much. We have a a few minutes. So let's talk about this country. Let's come right back to this country. Let's look at, you know, we have a lot of issues here. I mean, between the rich and the poor, we have some racial issues going on. We still don't have equality, even though we think we do. What do you see? What do you, where's the hope? And let's look at some of the, the issues here. Yeah, let's, because it's vital that we do so. America is still the leading economy in the world, although 
China is definitely rising, India is rising, so are many other countries. Our dollar is, is not in good shape at the moment, but America is still the engine, if you like, that drives globalization. And as you mentioned, we have some other problems. I want to return to them. But we'll start with, with economics. Look, Aristotle, amazingly enough, who, who was the first philosopher to call us the political animal, by the way. You remember, you, you started off the show by saying you don't usually get into politics, but here we are with Aristotle, and he called us the political animal, so we have to recognize that. Aristotle also said that the states that are the best to govern and the best to live in have a strong middle class. And that was incredible coming from ancient Greece. You know, they experimented it with is. many forms of and government. And we do have that, don't you think? We have that. And what I see now in the USA is increasing stresses and strains being placed on the middle class, and we're really in danger of becoming more polarized economically. That, that's a real concern. The middle class is bearing an ever-increasingly unfair, I think, burden of taxation relative to its resources. Real wages have not really risen in the United States. We have the same old battles being fought. You know, not everybody's getting enough benefits. We have an underclass, which has really almost no prospects of making headway. The disaster of Katrina revealed to us just exactly how many people were living hand-to-mouth, you know, on a given day in a given part of the world. This could have been true of any city. And I think that states are acting more and more like predators. Certainly, I could say without, without any qualms, New York State has many and varied ways of preying on its taxpayers, and, and they're unaccountable. This is, this is, excuse me, why we separated from Britain. Why we had a war of independence was one of the big issues was taxation without representation. So I, I really think that uh, there are a lot of problems that the middle class is bearing, and they're paying for you know a lot of money for education. They're not necessarily getting good quality for it, and so forth on down the line. This is one big issue for us. We need to keep the American middle class strong in order to be prosperous. Mm-hmm. All right. So you know, in closing, we have a few minutes. What would you like to say to folks, and particularly in light of the upcoming election in a year? Yeah, okay, don't get me started, but uh, there's a lot that could be said. We didn't have a chance to touch on all, of the, on all of the polarizations and tensions. We need more humanism in this country, and that will address the problems of racism and sexism and all these culture and gender wars. We need to look at each other as human beings and not as members of a given quota system or, 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 or a given group that's privileged or otherwise. We need to see each other's humanity. What I would say is that the elections scare me because we're not looking at those issues. We, we should be asking the following question. What is America? America's position in the world today, what are the challenges facing the United States, and what qualities do we need in a leader in order to successfully meet those challenges? And instead of asking those questions to find our leader, we're saying, who's going to raise the most money? Do we need a black president? Do we need a female president? You know, do we need a president with blue hair and tattoos? Why are we not asking the important questions about quality and virtue? What kind of leader do we need? Then we'll find that person. Do you think that we will be asking those questions as the election draws nearer? I certainly hope so, because otherwise we're going to turn it into, it's going to be turned into another Roman circus, and historians of a later date, not too much later, are going to look back at this time we're living in and say, well, here is a, a point at which America ceased to be a republic and turned really into an empire in that full-blown Roman sense, and therefore sowed the seeds of its own degeneracy. I hope we can return to quality of life issues and quality of leadership issues. When you wrote the book, what was your major purpose? What was your goal? What did it was you hope to, to achieve? Well, it was to give back something. I, I myself have been very privileged in a certain sense to have had a good education and to have been given a chance to bring ideas into many people's lives worldwide with 
Plato, not Prozac, and the other books. And I know from the vast amounts of, of email and, and travels that I do, I, I get a lot of positive feedback that ideas really are helpful to people. So this book, The Middle Way, is a reflection, Patricia, of my experiences in the last four or five years, trying to show people that they can have a better life and they can also help to reduce the tensions in the world by living well and that the ABCs are a great guide. It's just my philosophical contribution to making things better if I can. Are there any particular groups or organizations or things that you think people could be doing together to make this stronger for the middle way? Well, there are all kinds of organizations that are doing so much helpful work. You know, if people are disenchanted with government, which they are, by the way, government's not going to solve our problems. Just, you know, Marxism didn't solve the problems of the world, and looking to governments isn't always the answer. That explains, by the way, the proliferation of NGOs in this country, non-governmental organizations. They do really good work, usually at a grassroots level. I would say to people, go back to the grassroots. Look in your community for an organization that's doing good without the bureaucracy, you know, without being stuck inside the beltway somewhere and losing touch. Go to the grassroots. That's where Whitman found his inspiration as a great American poet, and that's where people will find the greatness of themselves and of America today. Mm. Thank you so much. So inspirational. All right, Lou, if people want to be in touch with you in the book, they would log on to themiddleway.us. They can go to themiddleway.us, or that will take them to my website under a different portal, which is loumarinoff.com, and they, they can get lots of background on, on my books and so forth, which I, I really hope will help them. Okay, and do you do lectures as well uh, off beside teaching? Constantly. I'm that's, that's you know part of my life. I travel all over the world, and I'm, I'm really happy to speak with people and meet people and, and, and learn about them and, and introduce ideas to so them. So people that's, want to know where you're speaking, they can go to your website. And sure. I have a, a, right on the home page, there's a sort of a highlight page, and it gives them a list of upcoming and, and current events. I'll be in L.A. on Wednesday. I'll be at Book Soup for that now on West Hollywood doing, okay. doing a, a talk and a, and a book signing about this very book. All right. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the program. Oh, it's been a great privilege, and thank you very much for your questions. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Stay on the line. Thank you. All right, folks, I want to tell you about next week's guest. My guest is Eldon Taylor, President and Director of Progressive Awareness Research, Inc., an interdenominational minister and Hay House author of Choices and Illusions, How Did I Get to Where I Am and How Do I Get to Where I Want to Be? He will discuss personal transformation and empowerment from the perspective of forgiveness, gratitude, and respect for all life, which is really what we talk about here in, in all the programs is respect for life and honoring each other, and that's such an important piece. Remember that this program is on Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can log on to my website, raskinresources.com. My book and revision is Pathfinding, Seven Principles for Positive Living. And again, you can also listen to the archive shows on my site, raskinresources.com, or on voiceamerica.com. Just go to Positive Living or Patricia Raskin. Folks, until next time, as I always say, stay healthy, stay happy, get all the support that you need, and know that you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin for Positive Living. Have a great Monday and a great week.
You've been listening to Positive Living with Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. For an autographed copy of Patricia's new book, Pathfinding, Seven Principles for Positive Living, log on to RaskinResources.com and tune in next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Have you ever thought about having your own Internet talk show? 